Hello, I'm John Tomlinson. This is the Trainer Tools Podcast, and I'm here again with Sunita Semi. Hi, Sunita. How are you? Hi. Hi, John. I'm fine, thank you. Nice to be back. Yeah, a long time since we last spoke, but it is great to have you back on. So thanks for coming back on. Pleasure. One of the things that I've been sort of racking my brains about recently and a lot of conversations we've been having at work is about how can we make sure that we as one training providers, trainers, but also as kind of training consultants, our L&D consultants, how can we make sure that we are being as inclusive as we possibly can? I work in a very multicultural environment and I'm speaking here as white, middle-aged, um, heterosexual man, etc. You know, ticking all of the sort of wrong boxes, if you like, on the, on the diversity chart. I want to make sure that I'm doing as many right things and as few wrong things as possible and making sure that the training sessions I run and the advice I give is leading to as inclusive outcomes as possible. So that, mm. So I thought of you. So I thought of you. And I wanted to have a conversation about that. I think it's a great topic and I think it's great questions you're asking. Um, you know, when I think about the role of L&D now and how it's changed um, so much, I know that you also train and consult in organisations and it's the workforce has changed, the landscape has changed, not just from a diversity perspective, but I think also from an inclusion and belonging perspective, especially since the pandemic. And how do we serve all the people um, fairly and make sure that everyone is really sort of developing in their in their way because I think initially L&D or historically was very much uh, a one-size-fits-all and now I think L&D are developing people skills or developing people in the organization and really thinking how does this reflect or how is this reflect being reflected in the organization and are we meeting everybody's needs and how do how do people learn best how do they develop we don't all learn and develop in the same way and i do think that in the last few years not only are organizations across the board asking themselves that question but lnd i think is quite a strategic player in that conversation you, you used a really interesting phrase in there and i know you use this quite a lot this distinction between inclusion and belonging and I really like that. And that was one of the things that kind of inspired me to sort of talk to you about this and, and really ask you, because I just like the distinction you're making there. But do you want to just explain a little bit more what you mean by that and what the difference is or how you would define the difference between inclusion and belonging? Sure. So just before the pandemic, I started to really think about this word belonging. I have been up to that point doing lots of work with some very, very well-known companies around diversity inclusion. And I, I saw that inclusion was something about the here and now, but belonging was something that was far more lasting. And also, I was very mindful that in my training programs, that a lot of white men couldn't necessarily relate to the inclusion piece but they could relate to the belonging piece. And in my mind, if we want people to be truly inclusive and create a sense of belonging, then everybody has to be around that table. So if you want to lift minorities or you want to lift people uh, of different genders uh, or with disabilities, that also means that 
really connecting with the majority of people. And I think the belonging piece is far more powerful than the inclusion piece. And I do think that from a perhaps philosophical point of view, I think belonging for me means that you don't have to actually physically be in the office or around the table. You just belong. You know you have this feeling of being welcomed and not judged and feeling safe. And this actually came out of a study that I undertook. I interviewed 129 people over COVID and asked them about belonging and non-belonging in their organization. Or I also interviewed doctors and psychotherapists and a priest and a monk and a yoga teacher. And it was really interesting about the power of belonging. I'm fascinated by this. I think it's so interesting, the difference between those two. Now Now I'm sort of reflecting upon it. And and how much more powerful belonging is, as you said, about that feeling of welcome and safety. Uh, so, so I'm really intrigued how, when we're doing L&D, how we can foster that sense of belonging. So w- where do we start with that? Well, I would always encourage people to start with themselves. Right. OK. I, if I think about my own uh, story, I think something which is important to sort of flag is that sometimes people think if you are a woman or you're a woman of colour like myself, that we don't have biases or that, you know, we're bias free. Everybody has biases. Everybody has some predispositions or some assumptions that they're making. And this is just part of human nature. So one of the things that I really would recommend is to start with, with yourself. And I think one of the things that I really encourage clients to do is to go back and think about, you know, how inclusive was the family? How diverse were the people around you when you were growing up? When did you first get in contact with difference? How did you react? How how did your family react to difference? And it doesn't have to be difference in color or difference in gender. It could be even cognitive diversity. So how did we how did you know we react or you react in in that context? Okay, okay. so I'm, I'm gonna I'm not gonna make this all about me, but um, <laughs> if you're asking me those questions, because I, I actually mm. come from a, a a very non-diverse background, so the the only you know I, as I said I, I I am a white male and my background where I where I grew up where I lived my school my social circle my uh, parents' social circle was. I think exclusively white, although I don't know where you draw the lines in terms of ethnicity and things like that. We certainly had Jewish friends, um, or my parents. My parents certainly did, and obviously there was a, a mix of gender. I'm not aware of any mix of sexual or er- orientation, so it was as pretty undiverse as mm. you can get as a kid growing up in that sort of very safe, very middle class, very white. I mean, okay, we were Northerners which from an English perspective, um, depending on where you live in England, you might regard as a, as, as, a, as a disadvantage. We never did. But we were, we, you know, we were reasonably well off. Everything was fine. It was about as undiverse as you're going to get. So when did it become more diverse for you? When did you start to notice? Was it university? Was it at work? Notice, notice what? Notice the lack of diversity. Difference. No, notice difference. So notice that people were different to you because it sounds to me that from what you're saying, that you grew up in a quite a, 
a white middle class oh, very, area. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. As white as you can imagine. It was like the good life on my street. But I suppose cognitive diversity, just to answer that point first, the cognitive diversity, I suppose I noticed quite young, just because my personality type being quite different, being one of the sort of minority personality types. So you soon you soon learn that you know you've got a, you've got an issue there that you've got to deal with but in terms of the sort of more visible diversities when did i first notice people that were different from me i guess i probably i left school at 16 and so i guess it was after that and i joined a college and it was in in the city center and therefore you necessarily were just mixing with people from all over the city so at that point i guess there was suddenly a lot more diversity in my immediate circle and i think this is where it's sort of you know the the first thing is noticing you know people who are different and and then perhaps naming it okay they were not white or they were from different i mean you even mentioned that you had jewish friends so that was the difference or the different group let's say in 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 your circle then i think there's something about noticing naming and then also i think how you integrate that in your life? How do you, how how do you accept it? How do you accept others? The difference? Do you embrace it? Are you curious? Do you reject it? Are you fearful? Because this is the first the first contact with with difference is is really interesting because very often and I know that you know you grew up in England as well. There wasn't that conversation about unconscious bias. It was called racism. And I think what's happened is that racism actually can cut down a conversation. You can't keep, it's very difficult to keep talking when we're talking about racism. However, if you say, or if you say somebody's racist, but if you say, I think that's a bias or that could be an unconscious bias, then we can, the conversation can keep going. So in some ways, what you're, what I'm hearing you say is that your contact with people who were different from what you're what I'm hearing is that you weren't shocked or you weren't fearful you were curious um yeah probably I would say probably too curious (laughs) I was probably being a little bit too direct in my curiosity in in terms of asking questions but I think that was partly just to a lack a lack of my own social skills at that age but very much yeah there was there was no fear absolutely not That, that I'm sure there was an enormous amount of bias that I was unaware of uh, but yeah, it was it was mainly curiosity. I definitely came from a background of quite, I'd say, it's sort of racist in a in a kind of almost uh, what's the right way of saying it? Of not not in a kind of you know aggressive sense of racist, um, but it was mm. that there was mm. pa- you know what were you going to say patronizing? Were you passive? Passive. Um, it was definitely passive, and it was definitely in the in the language in the word choices that people might make or in the humor people might use which was fairly normal around that time, the sort of 70s and, and sort of 80s, I guess. And and I suppose I'd always reacted against that in the same way as, as kids often react against the sort of the cultural assumptions of their parents. So as as my sort of teen years developed in, in the 80s, I was very much anti-racist, or at least that I thought so. Probably I was doing it very clumsily. So I was really actually quite excited to have a much more racially diverse group of people around me. I don't think I was thinking much beyond race in that sense of diversity, but I was I was quite I think, excited about the prospect of like oh thank God I'm actually getting some proper experience of life here rather than my bubble of safety which I'm just not interested in staying in. 
Yeah, and I think I think you know, there's two things that you've mentioned which I think are really interesting. Is one, I think at that time, growing up in the 70s and 80s in in England, I think the two main diversity groups were were labelled as is race and gender. I don't think at that time people were talking about cognitive diversity. They weren't talking about neurodiversity. We weren't talking about gender preference, although there was the start of uh, you know people, but it was still quite hidden and and not open. And the other point I wanted to make was about what you said about being curious. And I think that's really interesting from an L&D perspective and especially from a a white male perspective, because what I've seen um, and experienced as a, a coach and a consultant is that it's really quite hard for white men to know what to say. And I know there's right. this fabulous book called White Fragility, but there's something about not knowing, you know, not wanting to offend. And I, I think what happens then is you actually end up saying nothing because you're so frightened of offending somebody, you actually end up saying, not asking the question or not going there because, you know, you don't want to offend anybody. But I actually think what you said, you know, maybe I asked too many questions, but I think it's the way we ask questions. You know, I don't think it's asking questions, but I think if the intention and the intention stated that I really just want to know, I'm really curious, I'm interested I don't think there's anything wrong with asking questions. And I I think sometimes it's really, and I might might be criticized for this because it looks like that I am siding or having some empathy with white people. But I, I think this is about all of us. It's not, if we want to raise minorities and we want to make a more inclusive workforce, then we all have to think about each other and have empathy for each other. It's a, it's a, it's it's a zero sum game in my view. Everybody has to be included. Yeah, that's that is interesting. I I think, in my own experience, it was probably more about the the lack of skill in having those conversations, in the sense that I was just a kid. I was sixteen, seventeen, eighteen years old, and didn't really know what I was doing, but I was genuinely interested. But also extremely socially awkward. So. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, and 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 then I, I guess you kind of learn. Well, I don't want to offend anybody. That's you know. So you kind of do back off as you, and you perhaps to some extent you learn the right lesson, but to some extent you learn the wrong lesson as well, and then become fearful of asking questions. I wonder if um, if you think back, how many people in your entourage were as curious as you? Oh, I like the idea of having an entourage. That's good. <laughs> I'm gonna. So, uh, I, I don't I, I, it's difficult to say I, I think in my group of friends we were most of us would would I think mo- most of them were probably just not not particularly interested they certainly weren't racist as far as I'm aware anyway or at least not not that they were aware of perhaps so, so there was no kind of overt racism going on in in the people that I knew um, but I don't I don't know how curious they were to be honest I probably less so I think I was probably, at least as far as I can, as far as I know, anyway, from my perspective, I think I was the one that was always interested to know, and and also with um, yeah, as I got older and met people that had different sexualities, I was just fascinated, and, and and I still remain fascinated about how we relate to different genders in different ways, in in that sense. I just find it so interesting that people have such a different perspective about how they relate to men and how they relate to women than I do, and I find it very very hard to imagine being in that 
you know, having a different perspective in that. And I do find that interesting and how that sort of cascades through to, to the whole aspects of their lives. So, so I do sometimes end up perhaps asking far too many questions to my gay friends, just sort of interested to know about what, what it's like, their, what their lives are like. I just find it fascinating. And I think that's not always the case for everybody. So this is where I think this is, sure. for me, this is really, you know, that actually the pe- people who remain curious and, and want to know and want to learn, I still think that, you know, um, most of us is much quicker to and easier. And this is what happens in a lot of unconscious bias training is how quickly we go to, okay, within a few seconds, trust her, don't trust him, like her, don't like him, like, you know, he's hire him, don't hire her, or uh, all these things go on and they are milliseconds, these decisions. And it's very rarely that we stop and we interrupt that thought and think, okay, why? You know, what's going on? If I think about myself, I, I mean, I've been a woman of colour all my life. Uh, like you, I, I grew up actually in, in the north of London and was very aware of my right colour. I mean, my skin colour is not very dark for an, an, in, compared to my family, but I was not white and it was obvious I was not white. And uh, I would say every week I was reminded of my colour. Either somebody would shout out an abuse, you know, Packy, go home, or you'd put the TV on and the National Front was rising. So there was a real deep sense of not being not belonging welcomed, not belonging and and also it could it could you could be sent back you could be thrown out and i think that that was a fear my parents had um oh, because really? they were immigrants from yeah from london from from punjab sorry they came in london in 1955 and this was the time when looking for a house or looking for a, son, a room to rent where they had on the walls in the window no dogs no blacks no Irish. So there was this sense of everything's temporary. No, nothing is, you know, don't don't get too comfortable here because it could end. But that the is other... the sort of that is the sort of very definition, I suppose, of not belonging, isn't it? On Yes. Very true. Very true. And and you're making me really think about that now even more. Um I, I had did... Sorry, go on. I had thought I had I had I had written that in the book, but I now I actually reminded me, so thank you for that. I was going to say, did, and and as you were growing up, did you find that in school, in college, in uni, or whatever your journey was, were there moments there where you felt you belonged more, and moments you felt you belonged less? I, I really never felt belonging at school. Right. Um, I remember one incident where one of my best friends literally came in one day, and he had a razor cut head and a union scarf, Jack, uh, union Jack scarf. And um, of course he had become a member of the British National Party and the National Front. And I, he was 13. And I think, you know, it, we were really good friends and it seemed like overnight he had changed. But I think that what happened at school with that incident, because he had decided to stop talking to me because obviously really? I was in the out, out group right, yeah, because right. he had joined. But I remember that moment significantly is because in the class I turned around to talk to him and he wouldn't speak to me. And then he called me a packy, 
and, you know, told me to F off and go home. And I remember crying and being very upset. And the maths teacher turning around and saying to me, you know, if you don't stop turning around, I'm going to punish you or you're going to, you know, I want to throw you out. And me saying to Mr. Rogers, he just called me a packy. And the teacher, Mr. Rogers, just turning back around to the blackboard and continuing. Oh, no. And, and you just think about what message you were getting at that level. You know, this is the authority in the room. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't know. Just, did he agree? Did he, did he not? You know, you, you don't know at 13. Well, passively, he definitely agreed. Didn't he? I mean, by, as you said, he was the authority in the room. He was the, the leader. Um, and he allowed that to happen. So that's, that's kind of, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm quite shocked, actually, about that story. I think there are lots of stories like that. I think mine is one of many. I remember one thing really feeling after that comment, going thinking about my parents, because my parents were very, very fearful about white people. We, My parents had no white friends. So we were living in London. And we, I literally felt I walked in the house and it was India and I walked out and it was England. Uh, there were like two worlds. And my parents worked both for organizations where there were different communities and different cultures, but nobody white came home. Um, I think my my father had one friend who used to come maybe to for, for some admin reasons. But I think it's quite interesting how we stayed together. And my I, my parents oft, would often say, they're not like us. They're different. And I was always, out of the whole family, really curious, like you. I didn't believe that we were different. I thought that I, from just listening to my English friends and listening to my um, Indian friends and listening to friends from different uh, different countries, that we all talked about the same thing. And we were actually much more similar than different. So I have, I suppose, before working in this area, I suppose I lived this life. And then moving to Switzerland in the 90s, I saw it again, this in and out group. The only time I wasn't in the out group, there was another community that was in the out group. And it was really interesting to watch what the majority was saying about the minority, but I wasn't in the minority. And it was actually, it's a funny story, but when I got here, I, I got here in 92, within the first few weeks, my husband's friends said, why don't we go and have a meal in town? It would be nice for Sunita and she can have a fondue and she can get used to what Geneva, because I didn't speak French, I was 25, I didn't know what was going on. And they said, let's go to Paki. My heart sank. Little did I know that Paki, P-A-Q-U-I-S, is a really trendy area in Geneva. But can you see how how strong that that was? I mean, I literally thought, oh, my my first thought was, oh my God, not here again, not here as well. Right. And of course, you know, so it was really strong. But I think what was something which I really carried for many years is a bias, because I think that's, again, it's really interesting when you talk about being a white male and being biased, I think sometimes it's important for you to remember that we're all biased, John. We all have a preference. We all have a liking. We have our in-group and out-group and our go-to people and our non-go-to people. 
And there's something which I really think it's probably good for uh, you to do. I don't know if you've already done it. It's the IAT test, which is the implicit association test. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The Harvard University yes. thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I've heard differing things about this, actually. I have done it. And uh, and it was, I thought, quite interesting. But then uh, a friend of mine, he said that he'd read things, that the actual test had been disproven or something, or it had been uh, that, that it didn't actually work. So I don't know. I, I've, I say I've heard different things about it. He and said I, that. He I, said that. I didn't actually bother checking whether he was right or not. <laughs> so I probably shouldn't be saying it. It could be. But I think, I think that, I mean, I thought the tests were good. I have heard that as well. However, I think... Things in isolation, any tests in isolation, are never really as alive as um, as they could be if you do something with it. So, what I would say is to do a diversity and inclusion audit about you know where you grew up and how inclusive your parents and how diverse your school was, your teacher were, your neighbourhood was, etc. Which I'm happy to share with you after uh, on your website with the A with the IAT tests. But one of the things that I was really shocked about was when I did the IAT test, I really equated power with men. Right. And I noticed that when I got feedback, when I was either speaking or or training or facilitating, if a male said something, um, I would take it more seriously or it would impact me more. And I really looked at that. You know what? What was it about men that, in my mind, that was a part, was a clear, implicit, explicit bias? Not implicit, explicit. I, once I'd seen it, I, I, I realized it was a bias, and I realized that in my family that men had a lot of power. Um, my father had a lot of power. My brother had a lot of power. My brother-in-law had a lot of power, and men have always been given that power in the family. A very small. In, uh, example was how my mum and my sister and I would cook and the guys would sit down neat. So I saw that playing out and I'm I'm really aware of it. So I think, again, coming back to you is as a as an NLT professional, it's it's not a one and done. It's something that is you build on. You become more and more aware. It's like a muscle and it's just really question yourself so why is 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 this going to you know is this going to be is this interaction going to be fair is this intervention going to speak to everybody is it equitable i think in the example you just gave there where you sort of you you uncover this bias that you see power related more to men than women and it's kind of almost the last bash you want to have isn't it as a you know you think oh damn i've got that bias it's kind of really annoying isn't it and it's quite hard to actually admit that, or at least in my experience of noticing some of my own biases. And I thought, oh no, I can't believe I've got that bias. That's so annoying. And I really found it quite hard to admit to some of them. Did you find that? I did. I, I think that I, I did. I think it's, it's actually feels very vulnerable saying it out loud because, and I actually admitted that in, in, in a room once when I was working for, an organization it wasn't in relation in direct relation to this example but i was talking about a professor i worked with who really you know he would ask he would ask people in the group what do you think what do you think but he would always 
this the person who the, the the message always landed if it came from a male and i noticed this i noticed that he was really quite biased there were very clear gender differences how he treated women and treated men and the men made the decisions and the women were were sort of the caretakers and somebody in the in another organization when i was talking about what was happening in this group he said can i ask you a question and i said yeah and he said did you ever say anything did you ever call it out and i said no and i said i wasn't i wasn't courageous enough now i actually think that was a gift that he asked me that because now i will and i and it, you become quite unpopular not necessarily at work people like it at work in my job but i've actually started calling it out in my private life and i can tell you uh, some friends they don't like it some family members don't like it but i feel that i can't do this work truthfully and authentically if i'm not walking the talk professionally and personally yeah i can understand how that is that's quite a risky path to take isn't it but uh, uh, presumably rewarding well the thing is we're not perfect we're human if we look at all the you know i, I think to myself when anybody asks me for I'm working for an organization and they say to me you know so why should we sort of think about dni you know what will it bring us i mean you really feel like saying sometimes i mean there is so much information out there we know it's good for attracting talent we know it's good for this new generation we know it's good for innovation how much more data do we need to to convince people that diversity of any kind is good if managed well is good for an organization i don't think that's the problem i think what the problem is is the integration of it is first of all the application and the integration of it really becoming part of daily life daily interaction it's it's not a forced effort it's not you're having to double guess yourself it's this is about kindness and respect it's a fundamental human behavior i think yeah i i i know that one of my biases is around people that don't necessarily communicate particularly clearly from my perspective and therefore i'm necessarily disadvantaging people with accents mm. so and i know i'm aware of that now so i make a lot of effort and i think no no stop discounting this contribution just because it's heavily accented so mm. I, because i've recognized that i have this bias and i hate it about myself mm. um i've been able to do something about it but i do mm. remember once actually i was delivering a training course actually in geneva actually mm. and somebody who was a woman of color said something in a heavy accent and my immediate brain was i'll just move on and then i thought no stop listen to her properly mm. you know mm. catch catch what she's saying mm. try and try and sort of play with it Mm. And, and and really try and understand what she's coming from because what she was saying as well mm. i just thought that's nah, a load of rubbish mm. and and i and i and once we once i'd done that i have to say she was making a massively important point mm. and, and 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 i just absolutely didn't see it partly mm. under a, under a layer of my own bias as i as i just mm. revealed but also mm. partly through the fact she wasn't a very good communicator Mm. you know that was just a fact but once i actually mm. took the patience to actually think no let's mm. let's work out what's in here her mm. point was like oh my god this is a brilliant i didn't see that mm. at all completely mm. different perspective mm. and, and it opened up a totally different discussion 
from an angle I just had not seen at all. And it wasn't an angle I actually agreed with, but that wasn't the point. It was still was a very valid, interesting point. And to me, that was a kind of a real lesson of, you know, if you want to be good at this L&D malarkey, you've really got to be aware of those kinds of biases and, and not just put somebody in the box of, oh, here's somebody who's talking who hasn't got it. Do you see what I mean? Absolutely. And I think it's, again, I think that's so brave of you to sort of have I might, that. I might edit that. it out yet, you know. I've changed my mind brave, before this goes live. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it, it's, it's up to you. And I, I think that it's extremely brave because what's interesting is as well is this non-native accent. You know, and I think if I think if I think about you and you and me, how many people on television were there that had an accent in the seventies and eighties? Oh yeah, very few. They were comic characters only, not exactly. not not authoritative characters, exactly. not not news readers. So the, the bias stems from somewhere, and you know, I I think it is really even if even in two thousand twenty one, I am so surprised that I'm people are still saying and I really feel that the fact that I have a Spanish accent and the fact that I have a French accent and the fact that I have a German accent hinders my communication and I still see that having an American or a British accent there's a power to that and we're in 2021 I think that's the point it's that there's a power to it isn't it it's that it's I mean the communication may still happen but it's is that landing with the same authority as somebody saying exactly the same thing without the accent? Yeah. And that's exactly. the bit that's the bit that kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. And I thought, oh, bloody hell, you know. And it, it was just, and it helped me kind of understand my own real kind of core bias that I had. But it was that day in Geneva that really made me, that really kind of like, I thought, oh my God, because I was really conscious of it then and I was really practicing and really trying to get it right. And it made mm. such a difference. And I thought, oh my God, I've leveled up. As an L and D person, mm. I am a better mm. L and D person today than I was yesterday, because mm. of just that relatively small action of just mm. listening and exploring somebody's thoughts. Who wasn't a great communicator, irrespective of the other points. She wasn't, but mm. but she had a really really interesting point to make, and and that to me, I just thought, oh yeah, you've really leveled up because you've brought that out, and she wouldn't have had her voice heard otherwise. And I think what you're saying is, you know, this type of awareness or just reflection and, you know, inter interrupting the bias is something that I think you as an L&D professional, I think it, it can only help you as a cons in, on a consulting basis as you come into an organisation because this work is something that you are thinking about. You know, it's part of who you are. You, you, wanna, you want to get better at it, you want to become more aware, you want to be more conscious. For a lot of leaders, it's not their world or it, it feel it they know like they know that they have to be better at it and they know that it matters, but they don't really know why. And I think it's this why, why does it matter to you before you can tell an organization why it should matter to them? You have to really understand it, I think, for yourself. One of the organizations I work with a lot and we, we we actually do a lot of work about coaching for inclusion and these people are top leaders in the organization and what I notice happens especially with people who are have reached very high positions 
it's very much in the head. So they talk about color blindness, white fragility, sexual orientation, gender fluidity, um, see gender, and all these terms. And I, I think there's something about using all these. Terms. What does it mean to you? Let's unpack them. And 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 what does it mean to you? What does inclusion mean to you? What does diversity mean to you? What does belonging mean to you? What does equity mean to you? What's your journey? How can you know before we can really, because we you can talk the talk. This again, there's so much information out there, but I think sometimes you can become a hostage to all these labels and these definitions. And I think one of the Good examples, or the the best example of this, is the Black Lives Matters movement. Um, what I noticed is this backlash of certain people, you know, the media and even people around me, who said, "Yeah, but what's it got to do with us? We're not American. We're not living in America." And I think it was because there was a there was a removal of that's happening in the U.S. and it's not happening here. But it got people to sit up and to think about, oh, it does happen here. It happens everywhere, and it's happened for a very long time. Do, do you see what I, where I'm going? Yeah, I think yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is an interesting example. I, I think things like Black Lives Matter, they sparked a lot of conversations in my organisation, and, and sparked a lot of us to kind of think, are we really doing enough here? We are kind of um, culturally overwhelmingly white, Western, etc. And that's kind of how we define normal, you know, and everything else kind of radiates from that center. Are we actually doing enough? So it, ju just the sort of very existence of it sparked conversations, which I think didn't always go as far as they could have done in terms of action. But they did spark some conversations, some awareness and uh, and that. But I think there is also some truth that... It, it felt like a very American th phenomenon and in itself it was very culturally rooted in certain things that are that feel to us in Europe that feel quite American so there wasn't I think there is some truth to that that it did feel in its purest form as something that's happening somewhere else and and but I, and I would say so why shouldn't we still care oh it's yeah absolutely I... yeah yeah no that's I completely obviously I agree absolutely and and I think I think I think it's you know as we become more globalized, I think there is something a bit becoming a bit more siloed as well. So and and you know the pandemic has taught us that what happens somewhere else actually can impact us where we are today. I, I think there's there's, th there's things to look at there that happened in in that that whole movement of the injustice and the anger and the the, I suppose just the real violence that people have had to bear. I do think it's been, and I feel it's an unfortunate incident that had to provoke such a reaction. However, I do feel that, I don't know if you can say something good came out of it because it was a terrible thing that happened to him. But my word, his, his legacy has, has really changed the conversation. One of the things you said at the beginning was belonging was based partly on safety. And if mm. you don't feel safe somewhere, you can't feel you belong in that place. And if there is an entire group of your population that mm. doesn't feel safe because the the police in that, that area are, for, for some reason, 
assuming making assumptions and therefore that person is le is less safe then clearly when, when there's something wrong there in, in on the belonging meter definitely mm -hmm. i mean if it's based on safety and that was the kind exactly. of the whole trigger trigger of the whole thing wasn't it i mean if you if you don't feel safe i mean how can you possibly feel like you belong exactly exactly <laughs> One of the things that I've seen in our, some some race ally training is a, a scenario whereby on the Black Lives Matter thing that somebody somebody in your office is having a conversation of Black Lives Matter and somebody somebody comes up and says, "Yeah, but all lives matter." Now, what do you mm. do in that situation as the manager? So, I'd be interested to know how you would answer that question. Just to put you on the spot, there, Senator. <laughs> no, no problem at all. Um, I well, the thing is, it's not about all lives; it's about Black Lives. And I bet that's honestly what I think. It, it, it It's, in a way, it, it's almost like somebody saying, I'm, I'm feeling really bad. I'm feeling really ill. I'm feeling really sick. And you saying to them, oh, I'm, I know, I know, you feel, I feel terrible as well. Just been, had a headache all day. That is not empathetic. You are taking the conversation, steering it towards yourself. And that, that actually... Black lives do matter, and they have not mattered. And that is not to say that other people don't matter, but we are talking about black lives matter. And historically, blacks, black lives have not mattered in communities, at school, at work, in, in medical care, politically. That's the reality. That's a good answer. And so let's, let's take this to less dramatic examples for, just to finish off. So if we if we bring this back to the to the humble world of L and D, and me as a me as a trainer or me as an L and D consultant, are there a couple of tips, a couple of things that you want me to go away to think about? You would like the audience to go away and think about that would help us become better um, proponents of creating belonging. I think really think about what they mean to you. What is the difference for you about you know with, between diversity, equity? and inclusion and belonging. What do what, what, what these terms mean to you? I also would think it would be useful to really think about a team that you belong to. Think about a time in your life where you really felt belonging, true belonging. What did it feel like? What did it look like? How was your state? How, was your, how, how productive were you? What was it like to come to work? Then think about a time where you didn't belong and how did you feel? How did you perform? What were your relationships like? What were your energy levels like? I think it's important for us as professionals to really think about these questions. And I myself have had to think about this because I think before you teach, you have to be really clear and at peace with what you're going to share and also what you're going to uh, what you know and don't know about the subject. And you can't know everything. That, those are kind of really quite powerful questions, quite powerful things to reflect upon. And, um, and I was kind of doing that as you were talking about it uh, as well and thinking, especially your point there about when I felt like I belonged or didn't belong and the impact on me, that's that's really kind of, uh, that, that, that is a very powerful reflection. And then in, in terms of applying that to what I might do, as a as a trainer or as a consultant is there anything in particular that you think that you would advise i would go back to your teenage self and ask lots of questions oh god you don't want to talk to him i tell you 
you, you really have to find out the why. Why do they want to do this work? What's behind it? What do they want to see? Why do they want to do it now? Do they understand really what this means, how much work it involves? Are they aware of the, the, the pitfalls? Is it a one and done? If it's a one and done, there's, there's no impact. I think it's really important that the crucial stage for this work, when you work for an or when, you, when you're consulting or an L&D, proposing an L&D agreement or, or mandate, I would say it's so important to really understand their why and to challenge them and to really bring up, you know, call, talk about the elephant in the room, bring up the difficult conversations that might come up, engage them as well, because I think it's very important when we're talking about developing people and motivating people. And I suppose part of L&D is, is creating a value-based culture and, and a brand and building employee brand. I think it's very important to get top leaders involved, either that they show open sponsorship to this the program and they in all the work that I've done when you get top leadership involved when you get people who have authority and power and other pe the people in the organization see that that they are doing the work and they're involved it has higher impact yeah that's um that that's really interesting there's 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 so much really to think about and to reflect upon and and I think one thing that's sort of been clear to me here is that it's not a case of here's a list of top tips it's a much kind of deeper reflective process and there isn't a kind of a one size fits all just just do these things and there you go you've got you've got inclusivity you know you've you've got it sorted out there you go in that sense I'm, I'm kind of finding myself reflecting a lot as we're talking for, for exactly that reason I think that's good and, and 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 I have to say John if I'm honest when I first started doing this work I think it was only uh maybe say four years ago that I stopped giving tips and tools four to five years ago that I stopped. And I actually used to say to the leaders, why, what, what are you going to do with this tip? And I really think this is layered work. This is deep work. And this is about kindness. This is about creating a different type of organization, a different type of workforce where people really care. And we all know it, 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 it increases performance. We all know it increases productivity. But isn't it nice to go to work and really feel that you're respected and you can bring your whole self to work and no one's going to judge you? And I think that's, it's not a utopia. I think that's the goal now. And this generation, that's what they want to see. Thank God. Yeah, well, I, really, I, I, I love that. I love this. As I said, I was very inspired by, by the way you called it from inclusivity to belonging. I thought that was uh, just a really nice way of putting it. So do, do you want to, just before we end, do you want to just plug your book? Yes. So You might as well. Very, yeah, I might as well have plugged my yeah. book. So yes, it's called The Power of Belonging. It's actually a book for leaders or anybody who wants to create more belonging in their organization or in their communities. It has uh, exercises after each each chapter and I also have the quotes from people I have to say some of the quotes are really really powerful especially and quite quite hard to read about when they didn't feel belonging and uh, yeah my goal my goal is really I just hope it helps people to have more difficult conversations and keep talking about this 
well, thank you for that. And there'll be a link to that book in the show notes, which are on the, we don't have a proper website anymore, but we do have the, the podcast website. So in the show notes on there, there'll be a link to all the Sunita stuff, including including that book, which sounds really interesting. And it does sound like that's a way we can be sort of guided through some of this reflective practice to actually come to something conclusive. Because it is, it is very much about the way we are hardwired as humans to be biased and all of that. Mm. So a lot of this stuff, you do find yourself resisting it as much as your sort of conscious brain wants to wants to overcome it. So it is a fascinating journey. I think this has been a really interesting conversation. So thank you so much for your time and, and wisdom on this, Sunita. It's been really interesting. Oh, thank you, John. It's so nice to talk to you.